Amen. Well, good morning, beloved, and happy Father's Day. Um, thank you. Thank you to that one person. That was really kind. <laughs> uh, you should feel very ashamed. Uh, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, I, I, had a, I have a wonderful father. Uh, he was just always incredibly supportive. of. Um, he's the kind of dad who, regardless of how interested he was in something, if I was interested in it, he would become interested in it. And um, so I, I played various sports uh, growing up, but um, it was, oddly enough, I know they say it's the great American sport, but um, I did not play baseball growing up. Um, but freshman year of high school, um, I was still playing hockey at the time, and I still wanted to continue playing hockey, but I also wanted to play baseball because quite a few of my friends were going to be playing baseball, and I was like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play baseball. Um, but I had never played baseball prior to that. And so I was starting from scratch. My dad and I, we got gloves, a ball, and so we're out in the yard just learning to throw back and forth. My dad's a type. He's like, you know, throw it to me, and he holds the glove up. And I throw it, and I go right here, and he just let it go right past him. He's like, no, I said, throw it to me. And so that kind of thing, like, you throw it to the glove. Like, just in the general area, Dad, come on. Like, you can <laughs> grab it or whatever. Um, but we're, we're doing that, and slowly we'd get further and further apart. Um, but at one point, I missed catching it, and the ball went further back. So now I'm quite a ways. My dad had um, five acres, so, like, there's lots of room to spread out. And I knew I was way too far away from him to throw this thing safely. We're in the front yard, um, and he is back closer to the house. Uh, you know where this is going. And so from a long distance... I've got this. He's saying, don't, don't, Kevin. And I threw it, and you know exactly where that ball goes. It bounces once and goes right through one of the front windows. Um, I just fall to my knees like, this is the end. <laughs> this is it. And I'm just like so terrified of like what he's going to do to me and everything. And he comes back, and, and he was really handy with construction stuff. And, and I'm just waiting for him to lay into me and all this stuff. And instead, he says, you know, we made it this long without you breaking a window. All right. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'll live to see another day. Uh, that, that story stands out to me because you know, usually I, I have all ideas that most of you are like me. Like, things break. You know, you're a kid. You're, you're getting into all kinds of messes and things. And generally, it's just so much better when something breaks or you make a mess and mom or dad are not there to witness it because then you have the time to prepare. Like, Either one, how am I going to hide this? Like, how many posters can I put up to cover holes in the wall? Or two, how am I going to fix this? Like, if I'm going to endeavor in that, like, I'm going to fix this so they will never know that this happened. Or three, how do I prepare my story? Like, what, how do I tell them what happened in a way that's going to make them the least angry with me? All these things, um, because knowing you are guilty is awful. Knowing that you are guilty is just awful. But someone else knowing you are guilty is even worse. Like when I know that I'm guilty, it's just awful, but someone else seeing me in my guilt is so much worse. It's just even worse. And we, we talk about this idea of guilt, that we have done something wrong, there's something bad, and that is in such contrast to where we began last week with looking at Genesis 1 and 2, that God created the heavens and the earth. Before anything else, there was God, and God is, was, and always will be good, and he creates everything, and he created it good. Everything was created good. And so we have this good creation, and yet now here we are, experiencing bad and in this creation, you have these unique moments, like God forming man of the dust of the earth and then breathing life into his nostrils. 
breathing life into us. This intimate creation where the creator God would form us and then breathe life into us. Made in his own image. But then made in his own image when it was just Adam, which means human, the Adam, the human, it was not yet good. And so God wanted a helper, someone to be with Adam. It was not good for Adam to be alone. And so he made woman, Eve, from Adam. And now you have Adam and Eve together, good, in the image of God. And so we are good, made in the image of God, but only good together. It was not good for us to be alone. And now we come to chapter 3. So turn in your copy of Scripture to Genesis chapter 3 as we continue this narrative. Genesis chapter 3. And recall that chapter 2 retells the story of creation, but it tells it in this beautiful, intimate way that now is kind of focusing in on this relationship, this special, unique relationship between God and man. So here we come to Genesis chapter 3, starting in the first verse, if you will read along with me. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He knew he was guilty, and so he hid. This is what we often call the fall. This is when man who was made good together with woman, that we as humanity, we were created good, good together, and yet now, This relationship, this intimacy that we have with the God who formed us, uniquely making us in his own image, has been fractured. We have fallen from this right relationship with God. Sin has entered the picture. Sin means to miss the mark, to not be at the level or be where we ought to be. It's to fall short of the glory of God. And he created us glorious in his own image. But we have marred that. We have broken that. It has been fractured, and sin has now created this separation that we were good together, woman and man, but also God with man. And now, this holy God has an unholy creation as man has rebelled against him. This great cosmic rebellion as we have shaken our fists at God. Convinced by the argument, you will be like God if you would disobey him. And now we do this every day, don't we? In a million ways, in every single day, we try to live like we are God. And in this cultural moment, how true is it? We can't stand the thought of submitting to a God who says, this is what is right and wrong, and we want to challenge it with everything we have. Who is he to say what is right and wrong? In a world of relativity, that I'll decide what is true for me, and you decide what is true for you. Is that not exactly what this is? 
Say, I will eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I will decide for myself what is good and what is bad. When we know that, no, God alone deserves that right. God alone has that right. And yet we think that we can rebel against that. We can push against it and say, that doesn't make sense. So I'm going to throw this whole thing out because it has some things I disagree with. How absurd. Because it's just screaming, I'm God, not the one true God. We have rebelled against them. There has been this great fall, this distrust of God, this great reversal. Again, see it in the narrative. Man was created and tasked with taking dominion. You're to rule over creation. And so Adam and Eve should rule over the serpent. And yet here is this slithery little snake who apparently had legs at one point before this. The most cunning of them. And yet we were supposed to rule over him. And now here's the serpent ruling over man. And we succumb to it. Thinking as we lowered our own status that somehow we would be elevated to the status of God. It's absurd. And this is what sin does. It is blinding. It's deceptive. And we're all guilty. We're not only guilty, we're guilty in the sight of God. (laughs) He sees it. He knows it. And so what do they do? Look back at verse 10. And he said, I heard you in the garden. This is Adam responding to God because he is hidden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. What is our tendency? When we're guilty, when we mess up, when we have failed, when we are stuck in sin, it's to hide. The thing that is separating me from you, let me further separate and hide behind this fig leaf bikini that I've constructed to somehow hide my nakedness, to hide my shame, the fact that I know that I'm guilty. We hide. And sometimes hide and seek is just not a fair game. And my dad, uh, he was a battalion chief of a fire department, but then he got like 24 hours on, 48 hours off. Some of you are firefighters, you know this this schedule. Um, That gives him quite a bit of time where he could do other jobs. And so he would do various things my whole childhood to, to have extra income. Um, But one of those was he was in construction. And so he started off being a framer. He would frame up houses and things. And it's hot, a lot of work. But as he's working on that, he'd look around and see other crews doing different things. He realized, I could do that. And slowly, bit by bit, he would start doing more and more things until he got to the point where he could build the whole house from start to finish. And he did that for some time. And then he realized, I'm building this whole house based on this blueprint. I could draw the blueprint. And then I could sit inside an air-conditioned room, draw the blueprint, and someone else could be outside doing all the sweaty labor. And so he started doing that. And so he went from just a firefighter to now he's building houses from start to finish to now I'll just design the house. And so he designed and built the house that I grew up in most of my childhood. I'd play hide-and-seek with him in that house. And, you know, as a kid, you know what this is like. It's just like, I've got the best hiding spot. Dad, you're never going to find me this time. You, there's no way. I have the best hiding spot. And he'd be like, okay, Kevin, go, go, go. And then you know what he'd do? He'd find me. And then the next day, Dad, I have the best hiding spot ever. You're never going to find me. And this would go on and on and on. And I'll never forget the day that my dad stopped me. And he said, son, I drew the plans for this house. And I built it with my own hands. I will find you. <laughs> How much more so with God? The one who created you. He knows you. He knows you. This is the way that the author of Hebrews says it. That God, the creator, the sustainer, the omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, all-present, omnipresent one, he knows us. 
No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That God sees us, no matter how much we think we can hide. He sees us and he knows us through and through. You think about that. The God knows you. You cannot hide from him. There's nowhere you can go to escape from him. He sees you. Every part of you. And that is absolutely horrifying or wonderfully freeing. It is horrifying to think that God sees me in all of my disgust, in all of my brokenness, in all of my failure. God sees it all. Everything that I've successfully hidden from all of you, God sees it. Ah, that's absolutely horrifying. Or it is so wonderfully freeing. It is so beautiful to know that I am actually known, I am seen, and yet he loves me. Because you continue this chapter in Genesis 3. It goes on and it starts to tell us what sin's consequences are. That now that we have rebelled against God, there are consequences. And we know like man was created, they're there with the tree of life. Eat from the tree of life, remember? Don't eat from the tree that's associated with death, which is the one they ate from, the knowledge of good and evil, because the day you eat of it, you will die. They decide, I'm going with death instead of life. But we were meant to eat from the tree of life, to be with God for life. We were meant to be with him. And yet, there comes this moment when they rebel and they go to the one that leads to death. And you just imagine what that was like in that moment as they rebelled, as they sinned for the first time. This fall occurs. What was it like in their body, in their actual physical body, to go from, I'm going to live forever with God. He created me to live with him forever, to something just changed. And I feel the biological clock ticking down now this is now leading to death. And the spiritual reality of being ripped apart from life itself. They feel this. This is why they make a fig leaf bikini. Because they feel the shame. They feel death now coming on them. They know that things are not the same. And yet God shows up. And you gotta think like, is he just showing up to just like sadistically be like, guess what the consequences are, guys? Like, we feel them. We're seeing them. So what was the point? I think it's because he's actually wanting to give them the hope that comes in this. As you go down and he's telling them these are the consequences, he starts talking to the snake and he says, verse 15, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And we lose a bit of that in translating it to English. But what has happened is that seed has become a singular person. One person of the offspring of Eve is going to reverse all of this. That the serpent's offspring, the serpent will bruise his heel, but this seed, this one who is the Messiah, the salvation, the rescuer, the one who's to come, the Christ, he is going to crush the serpent's head. And so now we read the rest of scripture. You go from this point forward saying, we've got to get back somehow with life, somehow with God, and we're waiting for that that one of her offspring is going to be the one who's going to change all of this for us. He's going to be our savior. He's going to be a salvation for us. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so we hear this good news. It's called the proto-evangelium, that it's God saying in the midst of this curse, no, this is the consequence of sin, but I'm going to make this different. Someone is going to come who's going to turn this thing around. And so he's declaring the hope of the gospel in this. 
It's good news preached in light of this bad news that you know, you feel that there is good news that's breaking in. There's hope that's coming. Look for this one. Wait for him. He'll turn this around. And then you keep going in the narrative and you get to verse 21. We have declared hope of the gospel and now we have pictured hope of the gospel. This is what it says in 21. It says, the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife and he clothed them. Look, listen, your fig leaf bikini is not going to cut it. Blood must be spilt. An animal must die and take the hide of that animal to create real clothing, real covering for you so that you can actually have your shame hidden. To be covered is going to be spilt blood. This is why I think Jesus seems so uncharacteristically angry with a fig tree. You know the story when they're walking into Jerusalem? Uh, this is getting close. This is coming up to the, to the point of Jesus being arrested, betrayed, all his death and all this stuff. But as they come into Jerusalem, Jesus decides he's hungry at one point. And he sees a fig tree on the other side of the road and he walks across and he gets there looking for some delicious figs to eat, which I don't know, we have different tastes, but he gets over there and there are no figs. And you know what he does? He's angry and he curses the tree and it withers up supernaturally and dies. You're like, whoa, Jesus. <laughs> like, that's pretty wild. Like, why are you so angry with that poor tree? Like, it may not have, likely it probably wasn't even in season. Like, there's a reason, like the tree was alive but not producing fruit. There's gotta be a reason. And now it's dead. What is Jesus' big hangup with fig trees? I just imagine, you know, fruit is associated with us doing fruit, like doing righteous things, doing good things that give glory to God. And you go back to the garden and Man's first attempt in light of our fall, in light of our sin, to cover our shame, to hide our shame, to do something to atone or cover our nakedness is to take fig leaves and try to cover them ourselves. So I just imagine Jesus angry in that moment, thinking back to this. Your attempts at self-righteousness, your attempts at hiding your nakedness are never going to cut it. Blood must be spilled. There must be a sacrifice. And this is the gospel. That Jesus, the Son of God, is the seed that was promised in verse 15. He is the offspring. That he is truly the Son of Man. He is the descendant of Adam and Eve. And yet he is also God himself. He is the God-man. Conceived of the Holy Spirit. He is the one born of the Virgin Mary. And sinless in every way. He does not have the imputed sin. He is sinless and he lives a sinless life. He is the perfect embodiment of obedience and holiness. He is God in flesh. And he has come now as human to die in our place. Dying on a cross. Nailed there. He becomes our sin. Taking on this curse so that in him we could have his righteousness, that he has given us his righteousness, his blood spilt, this propitiation, this covering, this atonement, that his blood is now shed to be our covering, to cleanse us, to wash us, so that our sin is no more. We are now hidden in Christ. This is our hope. He's the one who is to come. He would crush the serpent's head, and this is how he did, by dying the death that you and I deserve, and then raising up to life, having conquered sin and death itself. What a beautiful hope. And how is it done? It's this declared hope that it's the descendant of them, this seed who would come and crush the serpent's head, but it's also the pictured hope that it's through the shed blood that he could be our covering. So now we have nothing to hide because he has hidden us. 
Because every single religion in this world acknowledges there's brokenness. Every working philosophy, every religion, at its base, says there's brokenness here. There's something wrong, and we need to do something about that. And so you go through every religion that you can think of, and they're trying to somehow make right this brokenness. That what do I have to do? And so we'll have these five pillars that we need to abide by. We'll have this whole working law that we need to adhere to. We'll have this philosophical idea that I've got to just somehow just stuff in my desire and eliminate it, and then I just achieve nirvana. I break off of this wheel of reincarnation, all this stuff, and nirvana. What's left when a flame goes out? What hope is that? To just escape all desire. But every religion is saying, in some way, we've got to fix this. The Christian faith, the way of Jesus, is the only way that says, it's not what you do. You cannot fix this. It's entirely what God has done and what God will do. It is only God who can be our salvation. He will address the brokenness. He does it by his own power. And so like Jonah, who reluctantly goes to preach to Nineveh after running, and he's thrown into the ocean, and just giant, just giant fish swallows him up, and he finally prays and cries out, salvation belongs to the Lord. Can't do this on my own. And so we join him in saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. He alone can save. I cannot do this on my own. God and his grace can. Because it's fig leaf bikini. It's just not going to cut it. Nothing that I do is going to cover my nakedness. Nothing is going to cover the shame and help me atone or make up for what I have done. Only God can do that. He does that in grace. And I don't deserve it. And love, there's a God who says, I choose you, I love you. And in this grace, it goes beyond just addressing the brokenness. Because the idea is to go back to this idea of what it was like in the garden, where, as we call it, peace. But in Hebrew, it's shalom. And so the, the, I want to say the different words there because we lose a lot when we think of peace in our language, in our culture. Like, typically, if I asked you, like, did you have a peaceful week? What you're going to say is like, yeah, nothing broke. Nothing bad happened. Like, like, we think of peace as just like eliminating bad circumstances. But shalom, this Hebrew idea of peace, is not just the absence of the negative things, but it's the flourishing of life. It's just go beyond taking away bad things, and that is what God has for us in life, is to just not just get rid of your bad stuff, but to prosper you, to flourish, to enjoy each other, to be fully alive, life and abundance, as Jesus said. And this is what he has for us. You contrast that to nirvana, Again, that idea of what's left when a flame is extinguished. <laughs> Elimination of desire, or you get into more things like stoicism. So just don't be, have no emotion. And there's a God who says, no, like I created you with those things. Desire is good. Emotion is good. And he wants us to flourish in it. And we can do that. Because as Paul said to the church in Colossae, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. We needed hiding. We needed a safe place. We needed something to cover our shame, our sin, our nakedness. And God has done that in Christ. And so now our life is hidden with Christ in God. And hidden in Christ means that you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to hide anymore because you've been hidden with Christ in God. 
And that means that we can be honest about the things that we're hiding. We can confess. We confess. I'm going to start with asking you if you can be honest first with yourself in confession. Can you be honest with yourself about what and where you're hiding? And we have to start there before we can confess to anyone else, God or brother or sister. First have to be honest with yourself. What are you hiding? Where are you hiding? If we can be honest about this because our life is hidden with Christ and God. And when we're honest about that, then there's beautiful freedom and there's healing that comes in that. This is the way the Apostle John said it in 1 John 1. He said, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there's freedom, like real freedom and healing and confessing. So we stop hiding and live in the light. Um, an artist that I, I love dearly, and he's tragically walked away from the faith for some time, but um, I sat in a room with him. We did a house show once, and one of the lines he said was, you know, one of the best things that could ever happen to me is if all of my sin was broadcast on the primetime news tonight. If I could just stand before you and just completely expose every flaw in me, that could be so scary. But do you know how freeing it would be to walk away knowing there's nothing hidden anymore? And so we walk in the light. We have nothing to fear because we are hidden with Christ and God. There's freedom. There's the assurance of a God who says, you belong here. I know you. So be known. I know you and I still love you. So now you can run about and you can play and you can be in beautiful communion with others because of my assurance vertically given to you that I know you and I still love you. Now you can be known and still be loved and still belong. And we can do that for each other. It's the beauty of the church, to call each other beloved, to be reminded, God loves me, knowing me. <laughs> and now I can love you and be known by you and know you and still love you. But as, as we go about this, um, spend some time this week trying to think through, like, what are, what are the big hang-ups in this? If we're to live as free people, not hiding, but to be truly known and loved, to love each other, um, in this art of confession, there are three tendencies that I've noticed in my own life and just kind of in our cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Uh, the first one is we often hide our sin by downplaying it. Um, you know what I'm talking about. We're not honest with ourselves about how heinous our sin is, how awful it is. We're not honest with God or with others about just how horrific our sin is actually take the time to think about where does this sin lead me to? What is the penalty of this sin? What cost does this have for me and for those around me? Don't downplay your sin. This is just one of the ways that we hide it. We can get this kind of like cathartic moment of like, if I confess, like if there's all this to confess and I confess to here, then like, whoo, that felt good. So I guess I don't need to go all the way here. Oh, no, don't minimize your sin. Don't downplay your sin. We need to be honest about it because the penalty for our sin is far worse than we could imagine and it's been paid in full. 
It's already been paid for. So why not be honest about it so that we can truly put it to death? As Larry Crabb says, you take it out into the wilderness and you put a bullet in it and you leave it out there to rot in the sun with the ants. Take it seriously. Because you will kill it or it will kill you, as John Piper says. Be serious about this. So sometimes we downplay and that's how we hide our sin. Another thing is we hide behind victimhood. This is a huge thing. And you see this in the garden. As God comes and confronts Adam, what have you done? And what does he say? <laughs> Her. <laughs> what she did. Well, what have you done? Him, that snake. It's the blame game all around. That in our sin, when we're guilty, we so, so love to just point to someone else. It's someone else's fault. And I'm just a victim here. Even when we know full and well, no, no. You own that. It was you. We don't play the blame game. And and I want to be careful here. Oppression is a terrible evil. When someone is genuinely a victim, our hearts should break. And I have great compassion for that. And we should defend and protect them. But we don't enable this current cultural hero worship of victimhood. Just because someone claims to be a victim does not make them a hero. Someone can be a genuine victim that does not become synonymous with being a hero. And so we don't glamorize that. We defend them. We help them. We don't use that as something to hide behind. We don't hide behind victimhood. Because it's true that often our sins are tied to our pains, but it does not justify them. So don't hide your sin by highlighting your victimhood. And there's a band that I, I enjoy listening to that has a song called Treason. And the, the lyrics of the chorus says, is it really heroic to be broken on purpose? Is there some kind of honor to keep living in the dark? Is it really heroic to be broken on purpose? Or is it treason to your heart? We don't hide behind victimhood. Christ has conquered and he leads us in this parade as victors. That he is the champion and we're following after him. So we need to be honest about this. And this is the third one. And this, often when we talk about confession, we're thinking about the person making the confession. But I think there's actually so much to be said about the person receiving the confession. On the other side, the listening ear side, it's important that we listen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said this in one of his books. He said, there's a kind of listening with half an ear that presumes already to know what the other person has to say. It is an impatient, inattentive listening that despises the brother and is only waiting for a chance to speak and thus get rid of the other person. This is no fulfillment of our obligation. And it is certain that here too, our attitude toward our brother only reflects our relationship to God. It is little wonder that we are no longer capable of the greatest service of listening that God has committed to us, that of hearing our brother's confession if we refuse to give ear to our brother or on lesser subjects. We must be good listeners to genuinely care about each other, to hear each other, to be slow to speak and quick to listen, to care more about what the person is saying than what you're going to say in response, to hear each other because there's so much healing that happens in that. And so it begs the question, why do we struggle so much to just listen to others? Why are we so quick to jump to, what am I going to say that's going to sound profound? How am I going to one-up them and like, oh, but you, you don't know about what I've done. Are you, like, why, why are we so quick to be like that, to be terrible listeners? I think it's because we are hiding. 
when someone struggles to listen, it is often because they are actually hiding themselves. So that's not who we are as followers of Jesus. Let's learn to see each other. When God sees us and loves us in grace, and when you extend that to each other, and then we don't hide, we come out and we walk in the light, and we remind each other, your life is hidden with Christ and God. You're free. As we walk in that freedom, as John Stott said, the Christian community is a community of the cross, for it has been brought into being by the cross, and the focus of its worship is the lamb once slain, now glorified. We don't run around claiming to be people who have it all put together. We are messy people, but we are messy people who are covered by the blood of Jesus. And he is shaping us more and more into the image of himself. The spirit of God at work in us, growing us, conforming us to the image. And so we herald this gospel, this good news that we don't deserve the favor of God. And yet we have it. He lavishes it on us. He loves us. That is what defines us, a cross that proves the love of God, that you are loved despite how wretched you are. We look to a cross and say, that's what defines me, that God loves me so much, he died for me. That's what can define you. Do you believe this good news? This is amazing. He died. He rose again. He wants to be with you forever. Isn't that amazing? Stop hiding. This is so silly. Come out of the darkness, walk in the light. He loves you, and he's welcoming you with open arms. They have scars on them, and they're a reminder, this is who we are. We're people of the cross. We worship the lamb, one slain, who is now glorified, exalted over all. So come on, let's be that kind of a community. We'll walk in the light. So when you see him now, see this kind of a God who loves you, who comes back into the garden when you're hiding, says, I see where you are. Why are you hiding? I'm going to take care of that for you because I love you and I want you back here with me. You're mine. You cherish him, treasure him. And he would cherish you like that? What? Ah, what a glorious God. So no more hiding. Let's respond to him. And there's, I I want to close with this. Like I know there's a, there's a propensity in the world of churches that on Mother's Day, it's like, ladies, you are so beautiful. You're so wonderful. You're of great worth. And all that is true. And we get to Father's Day and it's like, you suck. <laughs> and I, I, I promise you, when we put together this sermon um, plan, this, ser- this series, it was not intentional that we got to the fall of man on Father's Day. <laughs> and the last thing that I want for you to hear today is, man, I'm just so broken. What I want you to hear is, yeah, that's true. And I probably didn't have to say that. But what I do need to say is you're loved. There's a God who's recreating all things. He loves you. We cherish him. So we're going to walk in the light. Because as one of my favorite verses, Galatians 5, 1, for freedom, Christ set us free. For freedom, Christ set us free. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love. A love that was revealed in the way that it was that you would come to us in our hiding and you would never leave us there. You're so gracious. You're so good. So thank you for this salvation. Um, this blood that is our covering, that we are now hidden with you, Christ, and God. Um, thank you, God. We praise you. We give you all the glory. I pray that you would work this into our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name.